kids are going to die. You're going to fall off that. Um, where's the fence? How is this thing? What is going on? Stop. That's right. I'm Matt Levinson and I might have a story for you today. Take a look out across Sydney to places like Tumbalong Park down in Darling Harbour, the goods line behind the ABC and the U- and UTS. Those tight little city lanes at key quarter lanes in right down near Circular Quay. Even the Harbour Bridge ramp, bike ramp that's just being, you know, fighting its way through some sort of contested um, politics and all sorts of things um, to finally make that missing link onto the bridge for bike riders. Some of the most interesting and talked about public spaces across the city have been stamped by my guest today. At a time when COVID's rekindled our love for public space and community as well, when research is showing just how important it is to spend time with nature, and as Sydney is reshaped by this enormous wave of redevelopment and infrastructure, this work couldn't be more important. So when you're talking to someone who heads up a significant business, a major operation, it can be pretty opaque to tell exactly, you know, who did what. The most recent count um, here at Aspect Studios is 200 people on staff. So projects um, take a whole bunch of people to, to make happen. But whether it's the hands-on involvement on a project or creating space for it to happen, Sasha Coles, who is the design director at Aspect Studios, has been deeply involved in shaping the landscape architecture and urban design conversation in our city and so many other places. That's really kind of what this podcast is about. It's talking to great people, people who you know and respect, their work and who they are as people. But you probably should have asked a bunch of those nosy, kind of impertinent questions about how they got to where they are. And um, and now the time has passed. Well, this podcast is about actually going back and asking those questions. And I'm going to give it a go today. Sasha, thank you so much for saying yes and agreeing to do this. Lovely to be here, Matt. Thank you. Can we start way back, way back? Um, your parents, your grandparents, can you tell me what it was like for you growing up? Yeah, well, it is way back. I turned 50 this year. Um, so that is a, a milestone which has caused some reflection. So it's timely that you ask this question. But um, look, I grew up, I'm an urban kid. You know, I grew up in a city primarily. I was born in Brisbane uh, to... Um, my, my parents who were academics um, and they started out their, I guess, careers as, as teachers professionally moving into uh, academia and then into government. Um, but before that, my father, who is now this year 96 years old, so he was an old, I was the, the last of five kids, um, at that point two different marriages, so his second marriage. Um, he was a country boy from Forbes, so Western New South Wales, Wiradjuri country. And um, a lot of my stories and, yeah, my sort of fond memories, even if I never actually visited that much, were based around those stories that my dad told me, you know, post-depression, um, quinces, fruit on the trees, a kind of a, a lawless and liberated life uh, on the land in country 
um, so by the Lachlan River. So um, that's my dad's side. My mum, uh, who was much younger, um, I'm pretty sure one of my dad's students at some point. Um, but mum's, you know, 78 this year. So, um, but but she grew up in Sydney, and um, and look, they met, travelled over to Canada. My brother was born. They moved to Brisbane, and um, and that's where I was born. And then uh, on we went. Left to Brisbane to go to Germany for my dad's uh, sabbatical. He was working with the German government. Um, always around physical movement, uh, human movement, and well-being. Um, dad's a doctor of physiology. Mum has a sociology background. Um, so uh, in some ways, they have both informed what I do in terms of their commitment to community and the social contract and um, also this idea of, of exercise and well-being and human movement and being able to include that in your life uh, at all stages. Um, so, yeah, I'm sort of jumping about history and, uh, and you know, professional... Um, direction there of my parents but um, then they came to Sydney dad worked for um, the New South Wales government as director of sport and recreation uh, under the RAND government and um, and then we kind of took on from there grew up in in Sydney as inner city kids yeah what an interesting combo you know that community side the well-being side and also you know really deep involvement with, with government and how government works as well which I imagine must you know really set uh, at least a bit of a foundation for you in the work that you do which is, is navigating a lot of you know pretty arcane and pretty tough kind of government situations when you were 17 um, you know your parents split up right and when I was 10 when you were 10 right okay and you you went off and lived with your uh, best mate's family or a bit later on. Tell me a bit about that because that's the kind of stuff that can be really um, defining, you know, in a childhood. Yeah, look, we, I would say there's a, there's a fair whack of trauma in the, um, in the, the upbringing that, that we had. So I, I had a brother, um, a, you know, a full brother and three other kids were my half-siblings and, um, you know, my parents split when, when I was, uh, I think it might have been earlier, eight or, or nine. Um, interestingly, there was a lot going on in the world at that time. This is sort of 79, 80, 81, that period. Um, Mum was a, a very um, strong feminist and followed her political and personal, um, you know, I suppose, interests at that time and, and left dad for a woman who was a, a politician in New Zealand and, um, you know, you can imagine the disruption to a family um, just breaking up, let alone at that point in the 80s, um, a mum leaving a family to be with another woman in another country and it was, it was kind of chaos and obviously traumatic for dad. Um, but obviously those things galvanise you and so um, we stayed with dad for a while. Mum moved around in the subsequent years. Dad remarried um uh, you know when I look back on it now it was very formative he married a, a very strong first nations woman um Pat O'Shane who had a very you know um strong public profile and when I look at her external outward facing public persona and what she did I'm exceptionally lucky to be around somebody like that um personally in the home 
very different story, a lot of conflict, um, very difficult upbringing for my brother and, and I. And, you know, basically I just wanted to get out of there as soon as I possibly could. And that was, um, that was what we did. We sort of moved from mum's house, dad's house, whenever we felt like it. There was no rules. It was, um, you know, moving from place to place and mum, you know... Ha- ended up like we're here in Redfern right now in my studio and I literally lived in the laneway you know 50 meters away from here which was the the first house that mum could could buy I think for about sixty thousand dollars back then and uh and so you know moved between places and that was it. Such a different time than you know Redfern just you know I was walking up here and the storefronts are just so radically different to even what they were like 20 years ago when I was going to uni um but must be it must feel just so crazy walking through these streets, having had that kind of like that long history walking around these lanes and streets. I was sitting um, in my local cafe, which is just up on the corner here, and it's it's the one where most of the local mob go. Um, I haven't worked out why, but it's it's the place. It's on the corner. Um, you know, the coffee's pretty good. It's fairly cheap. Lovely people. Um, but there's a whole range of cafes and restaurants on Redfern Street that. Um, are frequented by different cohorts and it's it's super interesting just to watch who goes where um, what the offer is Um, the nice thing about Redfern is it's still complex it's still that melting pot that safe place um, which is the reason why you have such um, a history of activism and it was a safe place for a whole range of First Nations mob to come here um, and it maintains that with the mix of, you know, social housing, affordable housing, you know, ridiculously expensive housing, um, workplaces, retail, transport, um, you know, the sport history, rabbitos, and it's just this kind of incredibly um, inclusive place. And if you bring a kind of a friendly attitude to the place, it's I, I still find it, at, um, or now more than ever, um, the kind of most comfortable city place for me to be in but yes it was a very different story it was bloody scary it was maybe because I I wasn't I didn't have the developed sense of I suppose um, security in community that I do now Um, you know I I just felt scared when I was a kid walking around here um, for good reason. At some point you moved in with your friend's parents and, you know, I, I want to raise that because I read you say at some point, um, you know, that's where you were really introduced to gardening. I know you were talking about, you know, growing up with, you, with your dad and that kind of history on the land, but what was it, what was it about that moment when you moved in with, with your mate's um, folks that, um, that crystallised that? Because that feels like a really critical thing for you. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, I, I've been lucky to have uh, to seek out mentors, um, you know, my whole life, personal and professional. It wasn't the beginning of my relationship with um, environmentalism or um, nature at all. Like, we went to school down the road here at Sydney Boys High, and there was a there was a cluster of us who were sort of counterculture kids, and you know, it was, it was pretty radical, even in the sort of late 80s, like in year 10, I think it was, we left for the whole summer holidays and went down to the southeast forest. Um, And we had no parents. We just went down. There's a bunch of us. We found a troop of kind of strange forest people who took us in and set us up in tree platforms. 
um, near a place called Tantawangalo to protest and stop old growth logging. And we literally lived in trees. Uh, we were How up old there, were you at this time? Uh, would have been 15, I think. Um, and I don't know what my parents thought, but we were down there for, you know, the months of summer, um, walking around in places that we'd never been to, you know, exploring rivers, being up in tree platforms, learning how to fire bows and arrows and setting up tree platforms. And that was the beginning, I think, of my um, environmentalism and activism and love for preserving nature. How, how long were you down there for? I can't actually remember, but I'm pretty sure it would have been from, you know, that whole summer period from year 10 to year 11. So what is that? You know, the end of November to February. Um, and just there would be food drops. Um, I don't even know how we survived. We didn't have money, really. Um, we, got, we did get arrested. We got arrested and taken to Bombala, which is a timber town, and it was highly um, aggressive because, you know, we symbolised the erasure of their industry, um, these city kids coming down protesting, logging. Um, this is what we've been doing for generations, you know, fuck off back to the city. Um, they couldn't arrest us, obviously, because we were under 18, um, but we still had to go to the lock-up and then they released us. And, you know, those, those things are super formative. Um, and what I take out of that is just putting, you know, walking the walk, like actually committing, standing up. And if you believe in something, you, you have to enact it. If not you, then who? From that experience, you could have gone into politics or you could have gone into campaigning and, you know, like really hardcore environmental activism and a lot of people do that. Um, but you took this path of, um, of heading down this road into landscape architecture, mm. studying at university and all the stuff that you do now. What was it that, that tipped you in that direction? You know, it's, it's, a, it's quite a different direction and you can see, I mean, I think one of the exciting things about that time of life is the whole world just seems totally open. You just don't know. How, do you, yeah. how did you wind up going down that path that you so went down? That, that doubles back to your question about my friends. So as soon as I could, I, I left home and um, my mate uh, Diwa, who went to the girls' school at Sydney, we, we became great friends and her parents, Stephen and Ali, are unusual characters. Um, they have the oldest house in Randwick, a beautiful old sandstone cottage, which um, they've you know just kind of treated with care over time. But it was open. The door was never locked. There were kids coming in and out. We would go in there and have a cup of tea with Stephen and Ali or um, meet up with friends, maybe do some study there. It was just a really welcoming environment and something that I craved. I loved that. There was always food on the shelves. There, Ali would cook for you. There was no pressure. It was just welcome. Um, and so I thought, who are these people and what do they do? I want to do that. If, that, if this is what it's about, I love this. Um, and they, Ali was a landscape architect. She's, she's Dutch. Um, and she studied and, and brought that to Australia, met Stephen. Who, they ran a nursery. Um, I started working for them when I left school, sort of labouring, building gardens, mainly in the eastern suburbs. But in this kind of really laid-back, loose way. So very different from what we do now. We would start the day at Kaluzzi's. Um, which Stephen had been going for, you know, 30 years. We'd have our two coffees, which for me as a 17, 18-year-old blew my head off. 
And then we would go and work and we would literally do the work on the job, go to the nursery, bring the plants to the site, set it out and, um, and do it like that. So no drawings, no specifications, no details, like on site, looking at a site, talking to a client, understanding the site and then building the garden. And I love that. That was my introduction into problem solving, so sites, what their capacity is to hold a garden, what should it be and design and nature and I thought my brother was an architect he was studying architecture my eldest brother Peter uh, was an architect and so that was in my history and my family um, we always talked about design whether it was furniture whether it was a, a beautiful Lamy pen um, my dad you know brought a Citroen um, back from Germany and France when we came back in 1978 and it was just this kind of foreign but incredibly exquisite beautiful weird thing so there was a desire for understanding more about design but the side of nature um, was always there I think from those early activism days coming through garden design and then the choice was pretty obvious for me landscape architecture yeah and really appreciating aesthetics along the way you know when I was reading up um, ahead of this conversation, I um, I saw you talk about a Dutch arch- a Dutch landscape architect that you worked with after finishing school, and I was trying to I was searching up like who was that, and but this all sort of clicks into gear at that point. You know, having had that formative experience or that bunch of formative experiences, you um, you decided to go to uni and study landscape architecture. Was it? Was it a big decision at that point? Like, were you, I mean, because you could have just kept on doing that sort of freewheeling sort of approach to landscape architecture. What made you want to go and do the formal studies? I think I always knew that I would go to university. Uh, that that kind of, uh, I guess, that not an expectation from my parents at all, but my own expectation. That That's what I knew. My parents were academics. My dad you know, I was a doctor of physiology. My mum had a master's. Um, universities, I, we grew up in a university, you know, in, in, in Queensland. I went to Campus Kindy. Um, it was a familiar environment for me. I, I never questioned whether I would go to university. It was just what I would do. And it had to align to my, um, my purpose. So it was either going to be in creative arts or design of some kind, maybe architecture. But when I did landscape park, I mean, I, I didn't really know it existed at, before meeting Stephen and Ali and then understanding um, what I'd been doing was, you know, one part of that professional um, study. So, yeah, I mean, n- none of my mates went to university. Like, I was really the kind of only one of my, my core friends who went to university. So it wasn't something that we shared as a group. Um, I was uh, really on my own going off there. But... Um, I think it's just the family I grew up in. You know, I've done a hundred different jobs um, since I was a kid, and that clarity of of um, where you're heading to me, and I guess like it seems a lot clearer in retrospect, probably than it did looking forward. But it's I'm always amazed by that kind of clarity and that sort of sense of purpose that sort of like flows right through when you finished your degree in landscape architecture. Though, what was it like? I'm an incredibly impatient person in many ways. Like I, I love challenges. So I'm, I'm obsessed with um, new challenges, new experiences. And so it is really odd for me to look back and think I've been doing this thing now for, you know, since I graduated in 97 or whatever it was. 
Um, but, you know, it wasn't simple. I, did, I went to UNSW. I had to talk my way into the degree. I didn't have the marks, but I just kept... I was a mature age student. I was two years out of school. I was working and whatever. And I made friends with, um, with Shirley, who was the um, administrative person at, at uni. And I just kept rocking up and just saying, look, I, I really want to do this. And I'm, I'm close. My marks are close. I, you know, I got over 80, which was amazing. Most of my friends got under 20 or something in their HSC. We went to Sydney Boys High. It was a very different place back then. Yeah, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, right? Um, and, um, and so the enthusiasm, I think, got me in to UNSW. I was close, but I wasn't there. But they recognised my passion to, to get in. And I think that says a lot about me. And what I actually still work on with all of my team here is don't accept no for an answer. Don't be rude about it or arrogant. But there is always, if you are creative about something... You know, design is creative problem solving. That's what I define it as. And there is always another way. Um, and my family would are bored of me in never accepting no for an answer because, you know, most people walk away at the first no, but I will always try and um, have a conversation, find a point of interest, um, think about what it might be like uh, or, what you know, what, what does this person want who's telling me no? Surely there's a way that we can come together and, and um, do something which... It's good for both of us. So that kind of optimism and energy is within me. I don't know where it comes from, but that got me started at university. I did a few years at UNSW and then sort of chased my heart down to RMIT and, um, and I learnt a whole bunch of other things being down at RMIT about inquiry um, and research. Um, they're very different academic institutions. Um, but to your question, coming out of that, I think I've always been deeply interested and driven by challenge. So um, I've thrown myself into probably situations that were beyond me because I'm excited by that. Um, so I, I worked for a little bit in, in Melbourne, actually for Aspect in a different form then, and then came back to um, UNSW to, to lead first-year design and um, worked for a couple of practices and then decided that I probably needed to do my own thing must have been validating for you, you know, having kind of pushed your way into the university to come back as, as one of the lecturers who's, you know, um, shaping a course and, you know, helping take um, first years through. You opened um, a Sydney office for Aspect um, in 99, I think it was. Correct. That must have been just as the Olympics prep was winding up with you know, just massive budgets for landscape architecture and a, a huge number of projects that you know, really reshaped Sydney as it was back then. What was it like for you in those early days setting it up? Yeah, it was really probably not the time you wanted to start a business, you know. It was after a boom. Um, so, but because it was just me and my colleague, Julian Raxworthy, in, um, who's, another, who's an academic now and, um, you know, a great mate at the time, we were pretty nimble and light. Like, there wasn't a lot of um, jobs that we needed to get into sort of cover our part-time startup, right? So at least in 2000, around that time, there were things like design competitions coming out. Green Square was being, you know, thought about. I remember Stanisic and Turner winning that competition and, and thinking, wow, that's a design competition. Th this is going to happen. Um, and I remember Victoria Park competition. So it became visible. All of the the furniture and the streetscapes and Sydney Olympic Park and the remediation and all of these things were now visible and landscape architecture and urban design was being spoken about as 
a viable leading profession for the first time. So it wasn't altogether a bad time because there was a language there that there previously wasn't. Um, it was all architecture. So architects were responsible for all elements of the city, good and bad. Um, and so we started, I think, at the time in its infancy, but it was the professional growth of that um, industry at that time. So not the worst, but it did take time because, again, I didn't know anyone. I hadn't worked for people. So it was a lot of um, trying to find points of interest and connection with designers that we either read about in, you know, Monument Magazine or whatever, journal, um, and just door knocking. What was it like running a business, you know, straight out of oh, uni? I had no I had no idea. But I mean again, I don't I don't know that you you really need the full idea of that. If you have enthusiasm and drive, and I think that's what was picked up by a lot of the sort of people in the early days who looked out for us. And, you know, there are people that I can name, Peter Stronach, Kim, Kim Cristani, um, Philip Thallis, you know, um, a whole bunch of people who were very open and inclusive about these sort of young, um, emergent upstarts who have some passion for what they're doing. Um, and so it was more about what can we do together? And I, I learnt from associating myself with good people. What was a pivotal project from that time, those early those early years for you? Oh, that's a great question. I think the, the first one would have been the, the Waverley Clifftop Walk um, for Waverley Council. And that went from sort of Diamond Bay uh, around, you know, the streets of Dover Heights and Vaucluse. And um, oh, th- that, was, that was one of them. And, and it was pivotal because, you know, we over-serviced the hell out of it um, for what would have been a very small construction budget and a very small fee um, but, you know, we just researched everything, you know, ended up sort of the detailing was not exactly what we wanted, but it set us up for understanding how to design on a Sydney site because that is the most, um, you know, typical postcard Sydney site and how do you touch the ground lightly, how do you use materials that are sensitive, how do you not over-engineer stuff. So being young and enthusiastic, it was probably a lesson in holding back a little bit, but... That was certainly a project. The other one was um, a development project, which I remember walking into the sort of the business halls of Mervac and, you know, going for a gig there for... It was Cabarita, it's called. It was an old post-industrial site um, that had been completely scraped. And we got our first gig. It was a $500 fee to do a tree master plan for this development site, which, you know, they made... They would have, I hope they, and I, I know they did, was exceptionally profitable project for those guys and high quality and great project. Um, but, you know, they got us in on this $500 incredible. that then probably started rolling into other things. Yeah, There's, you know, looking across the city, there's probably not a parent who hasn't thanked you even unwittingly for um, Tumbalong Park, for the um, Ian Potter wild play area at Centennial Parklands. How, how did you approach those first playgrounds? And, and there may be others that are sort of earlier in the history. How did you approach them? What, what was your thinking? That feels like a really interesting area of um, urban design and landscape architecture at the moment. I think it goes back to that, that whole desire for inclusivity and empathy. And we do talk a lot about empathy in the office. Um, and by that I mean not necessarily trying to connect with everybody but looking at design through different lenses and that might be 
the eyes of a child. And importantly for cities um, like Sydney, modern city, um, you know, children were never considered in the in the sort of formation of, of that city, you know. Streets, buildings, setbacks, colonnades, business, cars. Um, where's the joy? Where's the life? Where's the memory um, and the connection point for kids beyond a museum or a library or a building that you go into? So it, it, it's really um, something about integrating play in the very fabric of the city. And Darling Harbour, the water play space, was a radical project for us. Like, that was really... That was a major project. Pirama Park and Darling Quarter were the two major projects of a public uh, domain scale that were, I would say, city-shaping for us. Yeah, both those projects are, you know, really iconic. And in in a way, like, the Tumbalong Park you know, it really started the shift in thinking about Darling Harbour away from being that, you know, very visitor-centric, exactly. tourism-centric, a place that no Sydney siders really went to, to a place that actually everyone goes to. And, you know, that's just extended with Darling Quarter and the changes down there. Yeah, I mean, I have to acknowledge it was the collaboration at an urban design level and my learning with, um, with Richard Francis Jones and the support of Lend-Lease And I say that um, not out of, you know, duty or anything, but we had an amazing team. So um, I I would say three people were really responsible as um, just champions for that. There was David Rolls at a kind of a high level from Lend-Lease, Michael Wheatley um, and Rod McCoy. And these three people, like we we travelled, we went overseas, we went around the world to look at, um, you know, integrated play spaces and we didn't really find anything other than in Germany um, and in some yeah some in Chicago but not really that integrated play in a way that was sophisticated and part of the urban environment traditionally uh, it's the set and forget the kind of put a fence around the kids and let them play they're a different species they're a different thing you know put them over there and the parents can just disappear for a while no that's not what we're interested in we're interested in learning from each other, parents engaging with kids, kids learning from other kids. So the whole structure of Darling Quarter looks at landscape first. So it's a, the whole idea of water play is about that site, which was indeed water, you know, swamp land. Um, and it had, you know, its mill. So there's an industrial, that was kind of a water-powered mill. There was an industrial element. And you'll see those motifs through the play. But the idea of um, it being just the public realm which s- just starts and falls away and becomes a playground was something kind of radical. And I don't think people knew what they were getting until it was built. In fact, we, I remember one classic meeting with um, some old dude, at, um, risk guy at Lend-Lease who came out and was just like pulling his hair out, could not believe that this thing had been built kids are going to die, you're going to fall off that, um, where's the fence, how is this thing, what is going on, stop. Um, and we had to manage all of these kind of fear, and we still do in all of our projects, the fear of what we do um, is often because people haven't seen it before and you just need to give these things time. Yeah, I, I heard Mike Hewson, the artist slash playground designer, talking in a really similar way about some of his projects, like the one down at South Bank that opened recently. And I think when you explore somewhere like Pirama Park, what, what I love is that 
yes, those things were made to be inclusive for kids and to be really fun places, but it's a fun place to explore as an adult as well. And those features just add to the visual interest and the kind of, you know, energy of the place. And and I love that that's a process that's keeping on going. Like the way down at Barangaroo, you've, you know, we've recently opened up the swimming hole down there and there's obviously space for that to happen down at Pirama Park. And so the evolution of these places is just going to keep on going over time. When you're reaching for the project that you want to tell people um, that really sort of expresses what you're about, what's the project that you instinctively reach for and tell people about? That is so hard, Matt, because it's, for me, again, it is the breadth. It's not only just the projects, it's the people that I have worked with over the 20-something years. I mean, that sounds a bit prosaic and a bit um, a bit rote, but it's actually true. It's so much about relationships. Um yeah, so I, I would struggle to sort of pinpoint one. It's almost saying, which child do you like? Um, you know, who's, which, which child really do you really like more than the other one or the other? You know, I, can't I really like them all yeah. <laughs> equally. Yeah, I can't really pinpoint. I mean, look, there are, there are projects which are formative in my thinking and I probably go back to for certain reasons. One of them is probably the least heralded or one of the least heralded projects, which was a square that we won in a design competition in Sydney Olympic Park. It's called Jacaranda Square. And it was a – what I love about it was a collaboration. Um, you know, we, we drove it. We were the lead in that collaboration. We produced the drawings, but it was with Peter McGregor, the artist and architect, and, um, and Bruce Slorak uh, from Deuce Design. And um, what I loved about it was these different minds coming together – a strong framework was created, a really strong identity and an idea. We used these glazed bricks that referred back to the brick pit. Um, we used recycled bricks. We had a very simple, beautiful um, diagram, party diagram that held strong. It still holds strong. Um, and I, I learned a lot about, yeah, about the simple design moves, but also the joy of materials. So in that project, there are these beautiful glazed bricks of greens um, which was like a, a kind of a built hedge around a park that you might see around a traditional park like Hyde Park whatever and then there's these sort of precast lounges the recycled brick and then a beautiful grove of eucalypts and it's quite simple in terms of the elements um, and yet flexible so it's open to different uses and you go there today and there are tables and chairs or the kind of layers that come with time and need from different cohorts um, so that one sticks in my mind. Uh, I don't know why, but yeah, it's a beautiful little project. Great landscapes and urban areas, you know, it can be really wonderful and egalitarian spaces, you know, they're public spaces, right? And I see in the way you talk and some of the things that we've discussed um, today, that kind of community you know, I know that's really important to you, but there's this real tension in the work, right? Like, you know, if you look at one of the, you know, iconic landscape architecture projects of the world, the High Line in New York, mm. the research is really clear about the just massive uplift in real estate values. And, you know, th- that is a really excluding project as well, right? Like it's, it's special, it's unique, people love it. And it's also totally changed the access sure. to the area. And... That's something that must be attention in all your work. You're making these places like Pirama Park and um, and the Goods Line and these places that are really special and beautiful and they're also going to lead to increased gentrification of the areas around them. How do you navigate that? Mm. 
Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great question. Um, I would look at Redfern again, bring it back to this location as an example. Um, everyone wants to live in a, a better environment than they currently do, right? Particularly if you're living in a really poor environment, urban environment. So I look at the the difference that uh, you know we weren't involved in this project at all, but the city of Sydney's done amazing work in terms of upgrading public domain. So Redfern Street is a high street. Um, it's simple paving. It's concrete paving. It's trees. Um, it's widened footpaths. It's these almost prosaic things which come together as a set of ingredients that uplift the quality of the place. So once you start caring for the environment, people take more care and more pride in the place as well. Redfern Park, brilliant project, right? Um, BVN, Spackman, Mossop, Michaels. Um, I, I reckon that's for me, one of the biggest transformations of this particular area, the fences were removed, the big crib walls, people were invited in. So it is about two things. One is about connection. All our projects, whether it's Darling Quarter, the Goods Line, Darling Square, whatever it might be, connection is the first urban move you've got to get right. And then it's about quality. There's nothing wrong with using great, enduring materials that are high quality because it shows a sense of civic pride. And I think everybody, doesn't matter if you're in housing commission, affordable housing, um, you know, or otherwise, we all get something out of that. A nice place to sit with your mates on the corner of a street. So much better than, um, than no place, you know, a fence to a, a house. So I see it in those ways. No project can do everything. The High Line is a good example, um, but it is just the High Line, like it is one project, it can't do everything. Um, it's not forming, you know, great recreation space. It's a unique piece of sort of hybrid industrial design architecture, landscape architecture, ecology, um, wayfinding. Like it's this package which is amazing and has captured the world's attention. And yes, it has been the backbone of gentrification um, but that's, you know, unique about value capture in that part of New York. So there's a lot of things going on there. Um, but I, let's not deny the public the best public spaces that we can make. Yeah, I love that comparison um, with Redfern Park, which is such a different project and and really seems to have been conceived with the community in mind. Like it really just transformed the feeling of Redfern, but not in a way that was about bringing in wealth, but more about opening up these spaces for the people who are already there and needed better access to them. You're someone who, you know, across the years I've known you, um, has just been very confident wading into debates, you know, making you know, you're, you're not shy in sharing your opinion on matters of importance. And I, I feel like in a city like ours in Sydney, you know, the, everyone, you know, particularly people who have a business to do with government, to work with um, corporates, to work in this space, tend to be pretty reticent about sharing their opinions about where things are going wrong or right. You know, something I guess people are fine about saying when it's right, but you know, things like there's been a big culture wars around cycling. You know, it feels like it's subsided for now, which is amazing. Um, College streets back open. It's incredible, but you've never stepped back on those things. You, you know, I think we first met when I was working for the Lord Mayor, and um, and you were really part of the, some of the community campaigns that were, you know, pushing for um, increased cycling infrastructure. 
how do you how do you navigate that stuff? Because you've you run a very successful business, you're able to collaborate and work with you know um, major. Um, corporate entities on projects like Barangaroo, um, big government departments on on some of the most kind of important projects across the city, and yet also able to sort of hold your own and um, not hide that stuff uh, away, you know, in private conversations. How do you navigate it, and, and what's the thinking that you go through on it? That's again a great question, and I I can I can remember turning up to a meeting early in Barangaroo. Um, on my bike, it was a weekend workshop. It was down at the Bond, you know. Um, there was a whole bunch of people wearing suits on a Saturday. I had ridden down and I was in some sweaty thing. I carried my bike up. I was late. And everyone, I just remember all the eyes looking around at me and thinking, who's this young guy, you know. And I, I think I was given that brand of the kind of lefty, alternative, environmental but yet confident, uh, so that, that's the flip side. But I, I never hid from who I was or my values, and I think that's a good lesson in that you don't have to be everything to everyone. In fact, it diminishes your value if you are. Um, the one thing I've learned is um, through, through trauma, I think, through loss, um, you know, I haven't talked about this and I thought about it only subsequent when you asked about family, but having lost two brothers, um, you know, my eldest brother died in a, in a plane crash and my, my brother closest to me um, took his own life um, as a result of, of mental illness. And having gone through that and coming through that, there's a resilience and there's a, a kind of a feeling for me that's like I just don't sweat the small stuff. Like I, I don't really care. Um, I... I really have surrounded myself with people that I value and um, I just am honest about who I am. And I, I actually think that my clients and, you know, you can't package up corporate sector in one big envelope. There are amazing people who work in private sector, amazing people who work in government. And they, I think, want to know who you are and what you bring. And I guess I've always just shared what I bring, you know, which is a, a deep... Um, commitment goes back to those first questions from from you about family this commitment to community and making sure that we don't leave people behind in the pursuit of these projects I suppose yeah thank you so much for your time today Sasha this has been uh, just totally fascinating conversation before I wrap up I want to ask you three quick questions top of your head first up what's keeping you up at night right now presentations (laughs) presentations <laughs> the, the the litany of uh of of actually knowing my shit and making sure that i um i honor the team here um you know i'm, I'm across a few things and so i want to make sure that there's depth in what i do not uh, flippancy or i'm uh, just getting through so that that's one second up who else should i be talking to you know, the idea of this podcast is talking to people who make things happen, who are, you know, the, not necessarily the people you always hear from, but the people who um, maybe over multiple domains, maybe just in one domain, just make things happen in, in our city or further, further afield, but live in this city. Look, I'm a, I'm a pretty local guy. Um, I love Jess from 107 Projects because she's just such a dynamic um, outspoken leader for creativity and 
culture. And um, I don't know if you know 107 Projects, but it's just here on Redfern Street and it's an open lounge room for anybody who wants to use it. Gallery, um, internet is free, there's a cafe in there and Jess has just... I've come across her constantly across various projects and I'm always impressed by um, who she represents, where she comes from and her vision for creativity and culture. Yeah, she's an enormous you know she's got an enormous energy to her and um, I love the stuff that she's done that's a, a really great suggestion what gives you hope uh, the um, wow what gives me hope I mean there's a few things there's conversations now which have never been had you know before or, or haven't witnessed before around First Nations um, sovereignty um, however that ends up um, you know I, I, I will just uh, I'm just excited the fact that we're having these conversations and that my kids know about First Nations history, which, you know, is something we can all share. There's a generosity to that and there's an inclusiveness now that there never was when we were growing up. That gives me hope. Um, the death of neoliberalism sort of gives me hope. Um, the fact that, you know, we have hit these kind of global crises points and we're talking about them, um, you know, that drives me because not enough is being done um, and not fast enough. Um, so I wouldn't say that gives me hope in terms of climate, but it's certainly the fact that all of this next generation are owning um, these issues, talking about it, educated, and I, I do feel optimistic. After so long, you know, of hoping against hope that action would start, it really feels like it's really kicked off in the last five, ten years, doesn't it? I think so. And, it, and yeah. it's speeding up incredibly fast. I think that's an... Uh, incredible a really great note to finish on thank you so much for joining me on this podcast Sasha it has been so great to talk with you thanks Matt where's, where's the best place for people to see your work is it the Aspect website I think it might be yeah or go for a walk around uh, One Central Park UTS the Goods Line Darling Square Darling Quarter that'll do it get out and walk that's the best way to experience it that's for sure um, this was produced and hosted by me Matt Levinson this is the first of a second series of this podcast. We um, had some fantastic conversations last year with the likes of Nick Robinson, Lee Tran Lam, Kayleen Milner, Cam Webb, Gemma Smith, Dan Illich and Lynn Dang. They've all got uh, amazing stories. So if you've enjoyed this, go back and listen to them. Let me know what you think too. I'm uh, Matt underscore Levinson on Twitter and Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn as well. If you like what you've heard, please hit subscribe and let me know what you think. Story for you.